Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to episode number five of the second season of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Kyle, your host here, doing it, doing it, and doing it right. Guys, how is it going? Welcome to the next, next, the next series of uh, historical events that we're going to be covering in the show. Uh, Of course, if you are a, a loyal listener to the show, you will have seen that we did Black History Month last month for the month of February, where we covered a litany of topics. And if you listen to the prequel episode, which I just released a couple of days ago, you'll know that this month's topic, this month's thing, no better word that I can think of off the top of my head that we're going to cover is small, obscure, weird, interesting little wars. And what that means is we're going to be covering wars that you know may have taken place between two well-known uh, belligerents, maybe took place, um, you know, even recently. But we're not going to, we're not going to delve into wars like World War One or World War Two or anything so deep, so big, so broad of a subject. Um, We might breach some of those subjects here in a further uh, series in the future, something where we may cover it over multiple episodes, because I don't believe that I can truly encapsulate those huge, complicated messes of wars in a 45-minute podcast. So, the month of March is going to be dedicated to these small little wars or weird wars or things that just don't seem to really have mattered all that much in the history of conflict, but they did happen, so we're going to talk about them. And this week's topic, uh, for the first in our series of little, small, odd wars, is the Falklands War, a war taking place between Argentina and the United Kingdom in the 1980s. Guys, stick with us. We're going to talk about the Falklands War right about now. that you might be saying with this episode is, hey, Kyle, what are the Falkland Islands? What even is that? What are you talking about? The Falkland Islands or the Falklands are a a, a a set of islands, and obviously usually when you say islands, there's like multiple hundreds of islands or something, but there's two primary brother and sister islands about 
300 miles east of the Patagonia coast on Argentina. Now, these islands just kind of sit there and they're hanging out and there is dispute as to who discovered them, when they were discovered, um, you know, who had lived there at the time, if there was any, or if it was just, you know, a couple of uninhabited islands with, you know, mostly uh, birds and shit on them. But throughout uh, maritime history from, and when I say maritime history, I'm of course talking about uh, European maritime history from the about the 1500s onward, where sailing uh, became a huge thing, especially in this area of the world. Um, there is dispute as to who even discovered them and what have you here and there with, with various uh, nations planting people there, claiming the islands, da-da-da, this, that, and the other thing. But to bring us up to speed for our story today, the Falkland Islands in the early 1800s became a British overseas territory. Now, the British Empire, which we may do a episode on uh, later, or episodes, I should say, because of its its vast nature, the British Empire at one point famously never had the sun set on it. And what that meant is that popular phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire, was that the the English, the British, uh, were really great at just going around, sailing around, claiming shit, and then making it part of their empire, their humongous, insane empire. And over many hundreds of years, they'd basically established, you know, colonies and overseas territories and what have you, literally all over the world. And the Falkland Islands, east of Argentina, were one of those places. Now... Obviously, the British Empire was extremely, extremely thinly stretched basically throughout its history. And, and, and you can tell that just by looking at all the nations of the world today that used to be used to the, the operative term used to be under the control of the British Empire. In fact, the place from which I'm broadcasting, the United States of America, was at one point a British colonial territory, like many others, South Africa, uh, Australia, India. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. There are literally uh, Canada. There are literally nations everywhere on earth that at one point struck their allegiance to the king or queen of the United Kingdom. And because of this, you know, the, 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 the United Kingdom itself, the British Isles themselves, really don't have all that many people on them. So when you're trying to establish this, this crazy large empire and put your people everywhere, you really stretch then the resources of the mother country, right? Like if you were to think of it today and say we wanted to turn the United States of America, the, the democratically elected Republican type country into the American empire, which some would argue kind of is the way it is, but, you know, that's semantics and that's, you know, an argument for a different time. But the American empire with some 400 million people and the, the resources of an entire continent, basically, at its disposal, 
you know, would be much better suited to sending stuff and building stuff and sending people everywhere around the world to, you know, colonize and take over and what have you, the things that empires do. You know, the British Isles are really not nearly as big as the United States, not nearly as many people, especially during the time that we're talking. So the point I'm trying to make after all that context lane the lane of the context, is that a lot of these overseas territories tend to start, you know, becoming this, these sort of neglected places. They, they, they are, they are ruled by the king or queen. Um, At this point, the Falklands will be ruled by the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, the current monarch of the United Kingdom and was the monarch since, you know, the, 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 the sixties. So you have, all these overseas territories, goddamn everywhere, even in modern day times, after a lot of these places had either established independence like the United States or established semi-independence like Canada, where, you know, Canada is technically independent of the United Kingdom, yet still is part of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom. And Queen Elizabeth is on Canada's money. And Queen Elizabeth appoints a governor general who is technically her representative in Canada that, quote unquote, rules Canada, even though Canada has their own parliament and their own prime minister who actually does everything that that you can do. And truly, Canada is like 95 percent independent. But anyway, after all that bullshit, there are all these tiny little basically forgotten places all over the world that have you know, crowned citizens on them, royal subjects, as you might put it, and they are ruled by the United Kingdom. They hoist a flag that probably has in its upper left corner the Union Jack on it and then whatever things that you like to add to it. And in 1982, the Falkland Islands became the source of a little strange war between Argentina and and the United Kingdom. Now, for the most part, I mean, the, the 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 United Kingdom had basically ignored the Falkland Islands. I mean, they were they were a thing. Obviously, people knew they existed, but nobody really did anything about it. It wasn't like something like Australia, where it was like, yeah, this is a big country full of people. It's an important, you know, strategic ally. This, that, and the other thing in a different part of the world. The Falkland Islands were just kind of these islands east of South America just sitting there with, you know, a a couple thousand uh, British citizens in them just kind of chilling next to South America. So Britain kind of just didn't really uh, didn't really concern itself with the well-being of the islands, the people on it, because they were just like, well, yeah, it's just it's fine. It's taken care of. We'll we'll put a little uh, we'll put a little task force of uh, Royal Marines there and they're just going to kind of hang out. And everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine and dandy. At the same time, Argentina is going through this 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 new sort of, of, of governmental shift. So in the 80s, we're in the midst of the, the Cold War. And many of the world's nations and their economies were struggling very badly. In fact, in the 1970s, just a decade before... Even the mighty United States was struggling through its own historically awful recession. The, the, the Cold War era really wasn't great for economic growth in most places 
because of the intense standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union and all of their little proxy states and allegiances and treaties thereof. So, because everybody's fingers were were hovering, you know, very trembling over their, their nuclear buttons, everyone was sort of afraid to do the things that needed to be done for economies to, you know, thrive for, for things to happen because everybody's just scared that one false move was going to fucking destroy the entire world. And honestly, they aren't really all that incorrect. Now, Argentina is an interesting little story on its own. Argentina, from the 1800s when it had gained its independence from Spain all the way up to the 1930s, was actually, interestingly enough, one of the wealthiest countries on Earth, if you can imagine that. Just little old Argentina down in South America was was booming and thriving because Argentina, the, the territory in which it uh, encompasses, is actually extremely good for things like agriculture. A, a lot of a lot of Argentina is extremely highly fertile, which, you know, if you have land that can grow things, you have then a resource that other people on Earth will want. So your exports will be insane and you will bring in tons and tons of money. In fact, in 1913... Argentina was the world's 10th wealthiest nation per capita. Number 10 in the entire world in 1913. That's extremely, extremely impressive. In fact, all the way up into the 1960s, despite you know the 1930s being when the, when the downturn started to happen, Argentine GDP per capita still, still was higher than Austria, Italy, Japan, and Spain, its former colonial master. But... As I mentioned in the 1930s, this is when shit took a dive. In the 1930s, a military junta or a military dictatorship ended up taking power in Argentina and ended their seven or so decades of civilian constitutional government. This really fucked things up for their economy. And despite, like I said, up into the 1960s still being a reasonable economic power, there was the the there was definitely a decrease in the growth of their economy every decade past the 1930s and then we find ourselves now in the late 1970s into the early 1980s now like we said argentina had really been fucking itself over with these military juntas i mean there was really no good structure and you know leadership into what was being done there would be military dictatorship you know, leadership in whatever form, and then somebody else would take over and da-da-da, you know, very unstructured, very undemocratic, very, very bad for those who aren't in power. Typically in these giant dictatorships, the people who have the power retain basically all of the, all of the, the resources, all of the money, all of, you know, everything that makes it good for them and very poor for those who aren't a part of the junta aren't a part of the the military dictatorship now in 1981 argentina was going through an insanely devastating economic stagnation as they had been basically every year since the 1930s but 
during this, you know, this this sort of late Cold War period, they were really, really struggling. Uh, military dictators General Jorge Rafael Videla and General Roberto Eduardo Viola were trying to turn this fucking thing around. Um, a new military junta had been governing the country since 1976. But as you could tell, shit was going south for Argentina and in particular the Argentine citizens. They were unhappy. The economy was garbage. Everybody was living like shit. And these guys in power were like, oh boy, what are we going to do to keep our power? Because that's that's always what it comes down to. That's always the number one concern of those in seized power, those in dictatorships, those who rule in authoritarian regimes, those who rule with near absolute power, their biggest concern is keeping power. Of course it is. When you control everything and you're the most powerful being in a nation, your your number one thing is to keep your iron grasp on that power, knowing full well despite all the bullshit lies and propaganda that you spread, knowing full well that your power is illegitimate and that people want very badly for you to go away. And go away is putting it nicely. Most people would like to see you hanged on the street while they throw tomatoes at you or whatever the fuck people do with with dictators. So, in 1981, there is a further change in the Argentine military regime, bringing to office a new junta again, headed by General Leopoldo Galtieri, sorry about my pronunciation, uh, Brigadier uh, Basilio Lamidozo, and then Admiral Jorge Anana. Uh, Anana was the main architect and supporter of a military solution for the long-standing claim over the Falkland Islands. Now, these military men were like, okay, what are we going to do to rile up our citizens in a good way they definitely didn't want to rile their citizens up in a bad way to make it even more difficult for their dictatorship to exist they figured and this is a classic historical move if you're paying attention to your history look for this move in the past you see it all the time and you see rumblings of it today if you see something like this take place and it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing but if you see things like this start to happen you know exactly the type of person or people that you're dealing with and their mentality these men decided hey look at those islands over there they're really close to our country they're super far away from the country that controls them in the northern hemisphere of the united kingdom they figure what better way to increase like uh, uh, pride in your nation in a nationalistic sort of sense, you know, rile up the citizens in a positive way, like I just said, you know, make this sort of thing like a, like we can all unite after uh, this particular cause. What better way to do that than to take those islands back in the name of Argentina and 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 really just you know do things like like you see there. Like I said, this is a classic, classic asshole dictatorship move. If you are doing this sort of thing to get support for your cause, then you're an asshole. This is always how it goes. Always. Well, 
we don't have any uh we don't have any good attention on our thing and 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 we are really in 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 trouble if we don't make something happen oh there's a little territory over there i think we'll just snatch that up yes and then everybody all of a sudden is behind you a really nice example in current times and i don't mean to get very political and it's not a very political statement but it is kind of what it is uh not to say that uh George W. Bush was by any means a military dictator at all like these Argentina guys. But the war in Iraq in 2003 um, definitely was a sort of thing like this. You have the September 11th attacks. You have the invasion of Afghanistan. And you kind of turn around this, this sort of bullshit war in Iraq which didn't really have much to do with with anything you know the original part of the war that was was taking place with the United States in Afghanistan and you know the search for uh, Osama bin Laden you all of a sudden turn this other thing into your war and you invade a country that you know was belligerent against the United States obviously in the 1990s but really, at this point, was just kind of a country full of assholes with head asshole Saddam Hussein, you know, being himself. And instead of, you know, doing whatever, you're just like, well, fuck it. We're just going to go in there, you know, say that there is weapons of mass destruction here. And then we're going to go fucking invade and, and go nuts. It's going to be great. We're going to we're going to, quote unquote, spread democracy. And it happened. And you wouldn't believe how high the support for George W. Bush was in those times, if you are a listener who remembers that, it was pretty amazing. Uh, a lot of people remember the George W. Bush uh, towards the end of his second term that uh, ushered in the Obama era in the United States because Bush was so awful and terrible and his economy was so garbage. But a lot of people don't remember first term George W. Bush and how incredibly popular he was. And one of the things that made him incredibly popular was this particular thing, because everybody in a nation, just whatever it is, will always rally behind its soldiers and will always rally behind, you know, this sort of action, which can which can always be spun in a positive way. So jumping off of that tangent Going back to the 1980s in Argentina, these men decide, hey, we're going to take these islands because, seriously, what are the British going to fucking do? They're thousands of miles away. These things are right next door to us. We're just going to go over there, and we're going to go take these back, and what are they going to do? Why would they even give a shit? Why would they even care that we're going to take these? They're ours. They're next to us, not them. They're ours. They're our islands. They're in our waters. They are ours, so we're just going to go take them, and hopefully, in the meantime popular opinion happens and here we're going to be it's going to be great you know it's at very best would have been a band-aid on their shitty economy and their shitty military rule but that was the plan we're going to go over and we're going to take over the Falkland Islands so at first it's a very sort of weirdly underhanded invasion in March of 1982 a bunch of uh, uh, Argentinian scrap workers go and land on South Georgia Island. Now, South Georgia Island is not a part of the Falklands. It is about 800 miles to the southeast of the Falkland Islands. The Falkland Islands and then the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands are all 
British, you know, these are crown colonies. These are protectorates of the British, you know, crown. And the South Georgia Island is basically completely uninhabited for the most part. There might be a few people there here and there, but there are no permanent residents. There's mostly just like penguins and shit. So these Argentinian scrap workers just kind of go over there and go, oh, hey, and then just hoist an Argentinian flag. And they're like, it's ours now. Hooray. And it's obviously an illegal move. Uh, the, the British had already claimed this island, you know, for themselves, which, you know, what is legality when it comes to that shit anyway? But really, it had been British for a long time. These scrap workers just kind of go on over there and say, hey, cool, and then just, like, raise the flag, and they have that. So it shows the British, hey, guys, we're going to take these islands. We don't give a shit. Um, we have our sights set on the Falklands, too. We're going to go ahead and do this. These are our islands. Then on the 2nd of April, the official, I guess, beginning of this war, in quotes, on the 2nd of April of 1982, Argentine forces then mount their own actual, not just a bunch of scrap workers, but their actual military, an actual uh, uh, amphibious uh, assault on the Falkland Islands. This invasion was met with a very nominal defense organized by the Falkland Islands Governor Sir Rex Hunt. It was just basically a few Royal Marines who were hanging out there, and they're like, "Oh boy, I don't think we can. Uh, I don't think we can really do much about this, so we need to withdraw." So, the Argentinians basically, without too much resistance, take over the Falkland Islands. Oh, hey, great. So, end of story, right? They just take over the Falklands, the British go, ah, fuck it, whatever, we don't really want these anyway, who gives a shit? And then the war ends, oh, that's not exactly how it goes. That is not at all how it goes. So, the Argentinian military junta was basically banking on the British just saying, oh, whatever, you know, these are so far away from home that we don't want to deal with them at all, we're just going to let them go. And, you know, whatever is whatever. And in fact, the the Argentinians were actually really uh, highly and well supported by most other South American countries. It, it, it's just that basically the rest of the world was like, oh, boy, I don't think you should you should guys should be doing this. And in fact, after that previously mentioned uh, scrap metal invasion of the South Georgia Islands and into the Falklands, the United Nations actually uh, condemned Argentina's, you know, sort of belligerency at this point. Now, what the Argentinians didn't suppose was that the British were going to were going to fight back at this because the British, uh, if anything, are very stubborn and, uh, you know, stiff upper lip type people. They're not just going to let you come in and fuck their shit up and do whatever the hell you want and that's the end of it that is absolutely not it in other words the empire the british empire will strike back the british weren't going to be having any of that bullshit so unfortunately uh, they they didn't really also think about that this was a, even a thing that was possible even a thing that could happen so they sort of haphazardly uh develop a plan and just gather a bunch of random ships and send them toward the Falkland Islands. So, on April 2nd of 82, the Argentine forces invade the Falkland Islands. They enter the capital of Port Stanley and they force, you know, Rex Hunt to surrender and raise the Argentine flag on the actual islands themselves. 
On the 5th of April, just a few days later, British task force of more than 100 ships then set sail for the Falkland Islands. These include aircraft carriers such as the HMS Hermes and the HMS Invincible. April 25th, now a few weeks later, South Georgia Island, which we talked about with the scrap metal guys, is retaken by Royal Marines. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher refuses to answer questions from the press on the operation, saying, Just rejoice at the news and congratulate our forces and the Marines, she says. Five days later, on April 30th of 1982, a task force then arrives in what is this 200-mile exclusion zone surrounding the Falklands. Now, this 200-mile exclusion zone, it's, it's a really weird war because this entire time, nobody actually declares war on anybody else. The British never declare war on Argentina, and Argentina never declares war on the United Kingdom. They just say, hey, these are islands, we're taking them. And the British are like, uh, the fuck you won't, we're going to take them back, bruh. And then they just start like throwing punches at each other. And the rest of the world's like, okay, okay, okay. It's like when you when two people just want to fight in the schoolyard and there's a bunch of kids just like surrounding them and they're like, uh, uh, do we let this fight go on? Do we like break them up? Do we like tell the principal what do we do? And just a bunch of people just like standing around watching these two kids just beat each other up for whatever reason. And and of course, everybody is is scared shitless. Because we're still in the Cold War. We're still afraid that some little conflict, dumb thing like this, is going to escalate into nuclear war. Because, you know, at first it's just the British beating around with the Argentinians. And then the Soviet Union is going to come in and arm the Argentinians. And the United States is going to have to come in and defend the British. And then all of a sudden, here we go. It's going to end up being a war zone. So everybody's just like, oh, shit. This 200-mile exclusion zone is a circle around the Falkland Islands where it was just sort of set up like like a ring. And it was like, okay, you guys are all going to be able to fight in this ring. But if you fight anywhere outside this ring, then then it's t- going to be total, you know, chaos. But in the, in, the, in the ring, I guess you guys can go ahead and fight. So, of course, so- something happens literally right outside the 200-mile exclusion zone. On May 2nd of 1982, the Argentine cruiser ship, the General Belgrano, is torpedoed and sunk by the British submarine, the HMS Conqueror, which kills more than 320 Argentine sailors lost with the sinking. This is the single biggest loss of life in the entire war, and and it actually results in about half of the casualties that the Argentinian forces will take in the entire war. Ms. Margaret Thatcher, as we we heard from her earlier, or the Right Honorable Margaret Thatcher, faces criticism over this sinking because the vessel was, of course, right outside, just a bit outside of the 200-mile exclusion zone around the Falkland Islands, which then gets even more ridiculous two days later as The uh, the Sun, a British tabloid, publishes uh, an infamous headline saying, gotcha, and showing a ship sinking on the front page, that ship being the General Belgrano, of course. Now, like I said, this became a huge deal in the war because people were thinking, oh, shit, the British don't give a fuck. They're sinking ships all over hell, not just within the fighting zone. And a lot of people had said that the General Belgrano was actually sailing away from combat and was sailing back towards Argentina, basically turning its back and surrendering or running away from conflict, and that the British had just said, fuck it, and shot them in the back, so so to speak, and sunk 
that ship. Uh, turns out that in 2003, so just after this war is over completely, the captain of the General Belgrano, Captain Hector Bonzo, I like to call coward Hector Bonzo, who didn't go down with his goddamn ship, then confirmed that the uh, General Belgrano had actually been maneuvering, not sailing away from the exclusion zone, and had orders to sink any British ship that he could find. He also stated that any suggestion that the HMS Conqueror's actions were a betrayal was wrong, rather than the submarine actually carried out its duties according to the accepted rules of war. So, most people were kind of shaking their heads at this situation. Turns out nothing really crazy came of it, thank goodness, although you definitely, especially say if it happened these days, you could definitely build a case uh, about how you know the British were being ultra-belligerents and weren't you know actually following the rules of war, this and that, and the other thing, you know, but luckily... That didn't happen. Now, on May 4th, a couple of days after the sinking of the General Belgrano, while the Sun was posting its gotcha headlines, the British lost one of their destroyers, the HMS Sheffield, uh, to a fire following an Exocet missile strike from the Argentine 2nd Naval Air Fighter and Attack Squadron. The Sheffield had been ordered forward with two of their other ships to provide sort of a long-range radar and um, high-altitude missile thing far from the British carrier. So they were kind of sitting in the back line going, hey, let's just do this whole thing. It was then struck by its missiles uh, uh, with devastating effect, ultimately killing 20 of their crew members and then really fucking up 24 of the others. It was abandoned and then eventually sunk. So we can tell at this point... The British and the Argentinians are not fucking around. They are going for it after each other. They are making this shit happen. Unfortunately for Argentine forces, the sinking of the of the General Belgrano was much more of a devastating effect on the morale of their own war than was the sinking of the Sheffield on the British side. After the General Belgrano was sunk, basically every single Argentine Naval ship was like, nah, fuck this, we're out of here. And they all went back to Argentina not to fight in the war for the remainder of time. So now, at this point, you have a whole bunch of Argentinian troops on the Falkland Islands. And by the way, the Falklands are very difficult to navigate around, very difficult to navigate to and from and and, and wherever. To the point where the U.S., who is obviously watching what's going on, actually stated to the British forces that any sort of, you know, counteroffensive for, uh, against the Argentinian forces was actually going to be extremely difficult because of how t- tough it was to sail around the area. And, you know, it, it, it's supposed to be a difficult sort of thing for the for the British. Really, people kind of thought after the Argentinians invaded the Falklands that, like, well, that's kind of it. I guess we're not really going to do anything about it. And had the Argentinian Navy actually stayed engaged in the war, there's a pretty decent chance that very likely the British would have just said fuck it at some point, been like, this is bullshit, this isn't worth it, we're out of here. Now, there are a whole bunch of Argentinian forces stranded on the Falkland Islands, surrounded by the, the, the British Navy. But if you want to take back the Falklands, you have to actually pop onto land and take it back yourself which the British start making plans to in the middle of May after having done all these little naval battles beforehand. On the 21st of May, 
the British commenced landings at uh, San Carlos, which is one of the, uh, the the coastal ports at the Falkland Islands. And then on May 28th through May 29th, a two-day battle known as the Battle of Goose Green takes place between British and Argentinian forces. 17 soldiers from the British invading force are killed and 47 Argentinian soldiers are killed on their side. In total, 961 Argentinian troops, including 202 Air Force personnel, uh, which is a huge strike against the Argentinians because a lot of their uh, their air force that had that had been uh, uh, stationed on the Falkland Islands after they had taken over were responsible for a couple of other sinkings and a lot of air superiority over the British forces and was basically the only advantage they had left uh, in this war after the Argentinian Navy had, had said, fuck this shit, I'm out of here. The British forces take over 900, you know, prisoners as well as the 47 that they had killed. And now that the British basically have a foothold on you know, the Falkland Islands and, and are making their own plans to really make an offensive to take the rest of it, on the 1st of June, 5,000 more British troops of the 5th Infantry Brigade excuse me, uh, under Major General Jeremy Moore finally start planning their offensive against Stanley. Now, Stanley is, is the capital of the Falkland Islands on the western island. During this buildup, though, the Argentine air assaults and the British naval forces were still continuing, killing 56 British sailors. And to put, you know, a further bow on how ridiculous this war really was, there were a whole bunch of disagreements as to how to pull off this sort of attack before it actually happened. There were disagreements with some of the Welsh guards, some of the Scots guards, and just some of the, the other parts of the Royal Navy trying to figure out, you know, exactly what was the best way to ferry their equipment from the easternmost island to, you know, the westernmost island where Stanley was and ended up being a thing where, you know, they're they're couldn't they couldn't be bothered to really figure out exactly what they wanted to do. And it ends up costing the British 48 more lives and 115 more casualties where only three Argentine pilots were killed because they couldn't, you know, stop fucking around and trying to figure out their way to get over to, you know, the island that's, you know, a few miles to the west of the one that they're on. And because this basically exists in the time of television and cameras, there are a whole bunch of sobering type images uh, and and footage that show the the utter ineptitude of the British forces trying to go over. And it's just a it just is is a total encapsulation of how ridiculous this war really was. It's just like you'd think that the British forces being this giant first world, you know, power would just roll up with their huge navy and just ass blast Argentina into, you know, into the uh, colonial era. But yet they don't. But at the same time, it's like, you know, Argentina is thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe we can just take these islands and the British will be like, ah, who cares? And it just doesn't go that way either. It just becomes this stupid little slap fight of a war that lasts two months and then it's over with the final offensive of the war on the night of the 
uh, 11th of June after several days of painstaking reconnaissance and logistic buildup because they learned their lesson uh, the week prior. British forces then launch a brigade-sized night attack against the heavily defended ring of high ground surrounding Stanley. Stanley happens to be a little bit elevated because the Falkland Islands uh, sit on, uh, much like Iceland, sit on, you know, near a fault, and they're a lot of mountainous territory and build up on these islands. This attack takes the form of two separate waves, once on the 11th of June and then later on the 13th of June, so there are two waves in this attack, and over time, despite being outnumbered, the British forces do eventually take Stanley from the Argentinians, and it calls for the end of this stupid two-month war that really took place for no good reason over a couple of islands that really don't matter all that much on Earth to anyone, really, but hey, Stupid small wars are interesting, right? In total, 907 people were killed during the whopping 74 days of conflict. From Argentina, 649 were killed. From the UK, 255 British servicemen and three female Falkland Islands citizens were killed during the war. So how did this all how did this all turn out? You know, in an aftermath, you know, to the world at large beyond just this silly little war. Well, there was a huge amount of material loss for both sides, especially in shipping and aircraft, because they were just blowing shit up and sinking ships that probably didn't have to be blown up or sunk, respectively. But hey, when you want to get in a slap fight with another nation, you just go ahead and uh, sink a few ships, kill a few people, and then, you know, we, we go on our merry way. In the UK, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, you might remember her, the Iron Lady, her popularity increased, which is what the Argentinians wanted to do with their enthusiasm for this type of conflict. Instead, in the UK, their leader, Margaret Thatcher, becomes a lot more popular. The success of the Falklands campaign was widely regarded as a factor in the turnaround in the fortunes for that particular conservative government that she was the head of, who had at that point been trailing behind the uh, the SDP, which is the Social uh, Democratic Party in England, and the Liberal Party in England, which eventually this uh, little uh, alliance, or whatever you might call it, would, would eventually become the, uh, the Liberal Democrat Party in England later on that would join the Conservative Party and the Labour Party as the three top parties in English politics. But beyond that, the islanders of the Falkland Islands actually kind of came out on top of things uh, despite just having a war fought on their native soil. And I call it their native soil despite the fact that they are and still are to this very day British citizens. Uh, They subsequently had full British citizenship restored in 1983 after having it I guess taken away for a few months from uh, w- from the Argentinians raising their flag there. Their lifestyle was then improved upon by investments that the UK made after the war and by liberalization of economic measures that had been stalled because the British were afraid that they would piss off Argentina had they done those things. But now, since they fought their little war, they could just go ahead and do it. In Argentina, 
this was the nail in the coffin for the military junta that had brought this war about in the first place. This total fuck-up of a war stopped uh, public opinion on what was called at that point, quote, the moral reserve of the nation, which was how the uh, the military decided to frame themselves, that military dictatorship decided to frame itself in Argentina, and this total fuck-up of a war ended up having public uh, opinion swung completely the other way, and Argentina has its first uh, free election in 1983 in a great deal of time, although it doesn't do much to improve Argentina's economy, which will, over the next you know three decades or so up to the current day, go up, flop, go up, flop, go up, flop, so on and so forth. Currently, Argentina's economy is currently on the rebound after having paid off its debt default crisis in 2016. So we'll see how long that lasts, although to be fair, Argentina has the second largest economy in South America after Brazil and probably has more natural resources, higher literacy, and is better equipped to continue its rise as an economic power than Brazil may. But Brazil is also an impressive market in its own right. So currently, Argentina, though not as good as it was in, say, you know, the late 1800s, is still no slouch when it comes economically just, you know, having gone forward and backward and forward and backward and forward and backward. It just is difficult to stay on top of things when you're there. But for the most part, the Falkland Wars didn't really poorly affect Argentina any more than it really would have. In fact, getting rid of that military junta was probably the best thing that happened to that country. My favorite my favorite quote of this whole thing, though, and to, to wrap a tidy little bow around this whole thing, was a quote by an, an Argentine writer, and he says, quote, this war was a fight between two bald men over a comb. There you go. No better way to encaps- encapsulate how ridiculous this war was than that quote right there. Could have just made the show that quote, and it would have been a lot shorter. And now, your non-sequitur fact of the week. In the human body, there are around 60 thousand miles worth of blood vessels I mean, that's just an, that's just a that's just an interesting fact I think and that concludes this episode of the knowledge from the couch podcast in the second series of our second season guys you can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser you can find the show's Twitter at the couch pod you can find me on instagram at kyle f steinhauser where i'm going to start posting more stuff that has to do with the show fairly soon and you can email the show knowledgecouch at gmail.com if you want to talk to me that way you can find our group on facebook search knowledge from the couch podcast and you will stumble across it very very quickly um look for me personally in both audio and visual form on the All Things Action video cast very soon. I will be on an episode or two of that particular program, which you should check out. My friend Aaron does an amazing job with that, and I only see good things 
for the future of that show, and I'm very happy that he invited me to be a part of it and that I get to nerd out a little bit and and flex a little bit more of my my uh, general jack-of-all-tradey type knowledge with him. So, guys, continue to rate and subscribe to the show if you haven't done either of those things. You can also leave a review through Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and probably through some other things as well, though I'm not entirely certain the uh, review capabilities of, of every podcast app. But I know that doing it through Apple Podcasts is probably the easiest way, and Stitcher is not too difficult as well. Uh, it helps the show reach more people, which is always what we want. Until next week, guys. Thanks for listening.